0: Welcome to Ignite. My name is Chase and I'm one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this week and next week. I don't know if you're sensing it, but I'm sensing just a renewed energy uh, in the life of the church today. That's because we have a lot of like 25 and unders coming back for school. Amen? Come on, they bring back an energy. Um, Let me say this, the pumpkin spice latte I heard is dropping next week, falls in the air. college students are back, this is exciting. And we want to capitalize on this momentum a little bit, this excitement, this, this new season entering into fall, we're ready to get back into our routines, we're ready to get back into our rhythms a little bit. We want to capitalize on that. We find that the couple weeks leading up into fall, when we're really back into our routines and our systems and one's back in the school and all that fun stuff, we, we want to readjust want to take this time to realign want to take this time to refocus as the people of God as the church so this week and next week we're going to look at a very practical teaching from the book of Acts Acts chapter 2 and we're going to look way back to the earliest community of Jesus followers the early church recorded in Acts and we're going to look at what were their rhythms what were their routines Right, in a lot of ways, the book of Acts is church in its purest form. Right, just days, weeks, and years after Jesus commissioned his followers, we see the history of the church unfold in the book of Acts. And so we're going to look at the book of Acts, the early church, and we're going to see what kind of rhythms did they have. And we're going to see this, the early church had a growing faith and were marked by tremendous relationship. We're going to look at this theme of growing in our faith and building relationships with other people over the next couple of weeks as we realign and and go into the fall. In fact, I think we're going to address a question that for followers of Jesus, we're all wondering from time to time, but maybe even a little bit afraid to ask because it's so simple and it's just assumed that every follower of Jesus knows the answer. And the question we're going to be addressing is some variation of this. What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? What does it mean to actually be a disciple of Jesus? The word disciple means student or follower. The word follower, it's an active word. It's active. There's no such thing as a follower of Jesus who's not moving his feet and following Jesus with their heart. Right, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Or may, maybe this, uh, for some of you have been walking with the Lord for uh, years and years and years. And you might be still wrestling with and wondering, how, how can I take what I believe and hear firmly on a Sunday and like actually have that impact, influence, and affect my relationships throughout the week? Like super simple questions that we just assume we have the answer to. And we're going to engage with these questions over the next two weeks as we look at Acts chapter 2. I'm going to give you my big idea that we're going to unpack uh, this week right up front. And it is this, faith without relationship is empty. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Faith without relationship is empty. And I want to read a a quote to you as I was reading over the last couple of weeks that's just jumped off the page of me. This demonstrates the idea of how faith, what we believe without relationships how we live that out is empty it's behind the screen uh, it's behind me on the screen and then i'll i'll read it for you here's the quote by miller j erickson he says this for many years the association of theological schools had an issues research advisory committee how many of you you're dying to get on that committee no of course not anyway they had an issues research advisory committee When funding finally came to an end, the committee held a final summary conference. What were our findings on this committee? The chairman of the committee, uh, in summarizing the findings of the several years of research, began the meeting by observing that the number one problem in theological education was lack of integration between the theoretical and the practical disciplines. Let me translate for you. This is a guy with more degrees than Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. This is his way of saying, there is a fundamental disconnect. There's a fundamental disconnect between what Christians believe to be true, their faith, and how that faith influences their relationships and how they live. This advisory committee, the number one issue they saw across theological education, they went into the, the seminaries, the schools where they're training pastors, the churches where they're training uh, lay people, volunteers for serving and ministering in the church and said the number one problem, open up the meeting, the number one problem is there's a disconnect between the theoretical and practical disciplines. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've, we've been here. I know these things to be true. That's my head. I know that Jesus rose from the dead. I know that I can trust God's word. I know I'm supposed to love people. I know all that to be true. But it's really tough to live that out in my heart. Or we could say it this way. There's a disconnect among a lot of followers of Jesus between knowledge, facts about Jesus, and wisdom, applying those facts to help people in relationships. We could say it this way there's a disconnect between faith and relationships. There's a disconnect. It's a disconnect in the church. And we're going to spend some time looking in Acts chapter 2 because if there's anything the early church had going really well, they weren't without their problems, by the way. I like to say, if you're feeling down about yourself, read the book of 1 Corinthians. There's a church of about 50 to maybe 200 people max, and my goodness, did they have issues, like getting drunk on communion wine and family drama and financial issues. And so the church wasn't without their problems, but if there was one thing the church did really well, it was the ability to hold the growing faith what they believe in their mind about who Jesus was and be able to hold that and apply that in their deepest, most meaningful relationships with one another. In fact, it's so fascinating because the book of Acts records the earliest apostles and followers of Jesus and many of the original 11 disciples believed so strongly in their conviction that Jesus was the risen Messiah, that they actually died went to death saying, I will not give up the fact that I know and I have seen that Jesus rose from the dead. I will die for that truth. That's how firmly I believe it. The early church had a firm conviction that their faith was real. They knew Jesus was who he said he was. And then relationally, man, we look throughout the book of Acts and it's almost like otherworldly, the kind of unity these guys had. I mean, it was absolutely remarkable. The Holy Spirit indwelled and filled the believers there so that they viewed their own possessions, like what they had to their names. they They viewed that not as their own, but they viewed it as, this is for the embetterment of the community. We're just stewards of what God has given us. We're just managers. Their relationships were marked by a deep, tremendous, miraculous unity. They had growing faith, and they had strong, united relationships. This was the early church. So as we talk about growing in our faith, as we talk about building relationships by looking at the church, let me pose this question to you. In which area are you stronger? Faith or relationships? Uh, theoretical disciplines or practical disciplines, according to our friend, Dr. Erickson, right? Where are you stronger? I believe every believer is going to have a bent based on their gifts and strengths toward one of these two areas. And some of you love experiencing and encountering God by applying your mind to study and teach other people from what God is teaching you. Amen. That's awesome. Let's talk, by the way. I love that. And there's some of you that you really encounter God by just opening up your home and inviting people over, playing some games and cooking them a meal. Relationships. You thrive on the relational. That's really good. God has gifted each of you, strengthened each of you uniquely to be stronger in one of these two areas. But let me encourage us today to practice both. To grow in our faith, to strengthen what we believe. But then not stop there at head knowledge because faith without relationship is empty, but let that inform, influence, and impact all of our deepest relationships with those closest to us. So if you would, we're going to be in Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke, one of the four biographies or eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. And so Luke, the author of Acts, puts in this little... Uh, narration piece early on. He says, this is what's going on in the early days of the church. And in verse 42, chapter 2, he says this, And they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, or the early disciples. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings. They were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And every day, this was their routine. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. That's tremendous what God is doing in the early church. And before we break apart, we're, we're just going to be looking at verse 42 uh, this morning. But before we, before we break that apart, I want to cover very briefly an overview of the story so far. A lot happens, man, in the first two pages of the book of Acts. A lot happens. And I'm going to give a brief overview so that we can be acquainted with what's going on, what got the early church to this point. The book of Acts uh, in your Bible comes after the four gospels of Jesus' life. The four biographies, the Gospels of Jesus, record the birth and the life and the teachings and the ministry of Jesus. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And Acts picks off where the Gospels leave off. And it picks up in Acts chapter 1 with Jesus's, we call it the ascension. In the Gospels, Jesus descended to take on human flesh and become like one of us, and walk among the earth. And in the book of Acts, Jesus, after finishing the work that God gave him to do, he was exalted and ascended back to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the exalted king. So he ascends. But he doesn't ascend without first promising the disciples, his followers, the Holy Spirit. Right? He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send a helper I'm going to send my spirit to not just be around you, but to dwell in you. And so Jesus ascends and says, hey, you you got to wait in Jerusalem, the kind of capital city of the church. You you got to wait here until I send my spirit to dwell in you. And in Acts chapter 2, we read that Jesus' words come to pass. He does not fail. He does not fall back on his word. Jesus, as promised Sends the Holy Spirit, not just to dwell around the early believers, but to dwell in them. It's a remarkable study in Acts chapter 2. The sound of like a violent wind just sweeps through this upper room where about 120 of the disciples were in Jerusalem, and the Spirit then fills the believers. And as they're filled with this Holy Spirit that Jesus promised, Peter... Peter, of all people, gets up and preaches the first Christian sermon ever recorded. That's in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches. He's in Jerusalem. He's preaching to the Jews who maybe reject Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. And Peter says, men of Jerusalem, know that you've rejected and killed the Messiah of God. says, look, would you repent? Would you turn from that sin and follow Jesus? There's no life apart from this Jesus. And then we read in Acts 2, verse 41, right before where we're going to camp out today. 2, verse 41 says, those who received Peter's word were baptized, immersed in water. They publicly declared that they're followers of Jesus. Those who received his word and were baptized were added that day, were about 3,000 souls. Let me just say this as a pastor and an introvert, that really freaks me out. (laughs) That really, like, 3,000 people being added to the church today. 3,000 souls. And then we read in Acts 2 verse 47, day by day the Lord was adding to the church's number. It wasn't just 3,001 time, it was this revival that was breaking out and people were hearing about this Jesus and they were seeing from the scriptures that this Jesus is the Messiah, the deliverer, the unique king that God had promised throughout human history. This is Jesus and he's worthy of following. This is Jesus. He's worthy of following. And so that's where we pick up. The church is on the... They're, they're experiencing revival. Thousands of people being added to their number daily. And then we're going to camp out in just one verse. Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And we see that the early church was marked by devotion... What does it say, verse 42? And they, the early church, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. When we talk about devotion in the church, we all have devotions in our lives. We all have things or people to whom we're devoted. Right? Uh, School is starting back up. How many students in the room, you're devoted to school? because you're paying a lot of money for that education. You're devoted to to school. That's that's not bad, by the way. That's just a reality of life. You're devoted to doing maybe something even as simple as you're devoted to eating three meals a day. Like you're, You're devoted to eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. These are things that we're devoted to. Or married folks in the room, you're devoted to your spouse. You're devoted to them. And if you think about these things or people to whom you're devoted, you know that your devotion impacts, influences, and informs all of your routines. Are you, are you following me? What you're devoted to influences and impacts all of your routines. I'll give you an example. Uh, married to my wife for a couple of years now, and I'm devoted to her. I'm devoted to my wife, Ashton. And this influences all of my routines, right? If we're working in the mornings and afternoons, Monday through Friday, then I'm probably not going to schedule a lot of my meetings for Thursday evening. Why? Because my rhythm is devotion to Ashton and we spend time together in the evenings. I'm I'm devoted to her. That influences how I schedule my workday. Or maybe in way bigger things, because I'm devoted to Ashton, it It influences, she informs and impacts where we're going to live to raise a family. What I'm saying is very practically, from the big things to the small things, from the B-list priorities to the A-list priorities, that person or thing to whom or which you're devoted influences all aspects of life. It informs all aspects of life. All of your rhythms, all of your routines are influenced by that thing or person to whom you're devoted. So let me ask you this, with you as followers of Jesus, can you say that your devotion to Jesus impacts, influences, and informs every area from small to big, every area of your life? Can you say your devotion to Jesus influences how much time you spend at work and how good of a job you do when you're at your place of work? Does your devotion to Jesus impact how you spend your free time? Does it impact your morning and evening routines? Does it impact who you walk in relationship with and who you maybe avoid to keep yourself safe? Does your devotion to Jesus impact every area of life? For the followers of Jesus, the early church, their devotion to Jesus influenced, informed, impacted, and I would even say transformed, Every area of their life. And Luke in Acts 2.42, he gives us four ways that the disciples' devotion to Jesus influenced and informed and transformed their life. The first is this: they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early Christian community, the early followers of Jesus, it was a knowledge tradition. It was a learning community. Christianity has always been marked by, since its advent 2,000 years ago, it's always been marked by Christians being a people of the book. People that have an informed, reasonable faith. Right, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's important enough for me to touch on and approach it again. The truth claims of Christianity are rooted in actual historical events that are verifiable. Like Paul says, the Apostle Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, he says in his letter to The church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that if Christ was not resurrected, our faith is empty. Our faith is in vain. Why? Because Christianity is founded on the actual verifiable event in history that Jesus, the God-man, was crucified under Pontius Pilate and then bodily raised again three days later. These are verifiable historical truth claims that Christianity is built on. Our faith is reasonable. Our faith stands to the toughest of scrutiny. Students, let me say this. If you are maybe going into your first year of college and you're taking philosophy 102, you're probably going to have a secular professor who tries to tear down your faith and all that you ever believed was true. Let me tell you this. Your faith in Jesus stands to the toughest of scrutiny. Your faith in Jesus stands Generation after generation for 2,000 years have gotten PhD after PhD attempting to disprove the validity or inconsistency of Christianity and it has not been done. To put it crassly, those people have died, Christianity has survived. Church, I don't say this arrogantly, I say this confidently. We have a hope that's an anchor for our soul. This is the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to this fact that Jesus was raised, and I can stake my life on it. And because Jesus was raised, Jesus, therefore, has to be not just a good man, but the God-man. i got to place my trust and faith in Jesus. They devoted themselves to this teaching. So crucial to teaching and education in the early church was that Jesus in Matthew 28 when giving the great commission, sending his disciples out before he was ascending to heaven, Jesus said, go therefore make disciples or followers of all nations, baptizing them. Then he says, teaching them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So very practically on the ground, the early church, if you read the sermons of Peter and the sermons of Paul and the sermon of Stephen in Acts chapter Seven, you, you'll see that it was rooted in the Hebrew Bible. It was rooted in the Old Testament. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then they founded their teaching on the teachings of Jesus. We're talking super practical. The fact that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, absolutely. But they would have also been rooted and steeped in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Right? They would have studied those teachings very Very consistently and thoroughly, the early church devoted themselves to this teaching. Second thing this early church community was marked by was fellowship. When we talk about fellowship, we're talking about relationship. It's a relational word. Remember, faith without relationship is empty. Even the early church understood this. They said, yeah, we're going to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, but for what? So that it impacts and influences our closest and deepest relationships with other people. Fellowship. You don't need to know Greek to maybe be familiar with this word. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Maybe you've heard it before, koinonia. And it's this idea relationally of sharing in or participating in something with other people. It has both physical and spiritual implications. I'll give you just a brief biblical example. Physically, in Acts 2.42, the early followers of Jesus devoted themselves to koinonia. Like they physically took time out of their week to gather together. But spiritually speaking, this was one of Paul's favorite words, koinonia, to use in describing our spiritual union with Christ when we place our faith in his finished work. I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He says that God has granted to believers fellowship with the Son. What's our word? Koinonia with the Son. When we place our faith in Jesus, we have koinonia with Jesus. We are spiritually united by faith. To Jesus. Faith without relationship is empty. And I would even go further and say this. Faith without relationship is unbiblical. There's no biblical precedent. There's no biblical paradigm for it. Fundamentally, what we know to be true must impact how we live and how we walk with other people. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to koinonia. Their faith, the apostles' teaching, informed their relationships, their fellowship. We see the third thing. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to, to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, how many carb lovers do we have in the room? I just found your life verse. <laughs> they were they were devoted to the breaking of bread. I love carbs, but carbs don't love me. That's it's a love hate relationship. I don't. With that being said, this is talking about the Lord's Supper, communion, which we're actually going to practice in a few moments. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians eleven. This time in history where Jesus, hours before his crucifixion, they he, he instituted this meal of bread and wine and and said, each time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, do it in remembrance of me because this is symbolic of my body being broken on the cross. It's symbolic of my blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sin. It's the Lord's Supper. We do it in remembrance of Of Jesus. And actually, we we call it communion. We call it communion, koinonia, because it's us communing with one another and communing with, with Jesus. That being said, it not only refers to the early disciples practicing the Lord's Supper, but the breaking of bread can also refer to just the regular routine meals they have with one another throughout the week. Very, very practical. The early Jesus community would open up their homes to one another. And they'd have them over for a meal. This was a way they practiced fellowship. This was a way they strengthened and grew in their faith. It's how they built relationships. How many of you know there's something really sacred, even still today? There's something that completely connects cultures. There's something that totally transcends language barriers. And it's, it's the simple opening up your home for a meal. It's sharing a meal with someone. It's this sacred set-apart act. It's so common, but it's so powerful. When we open up our home, turn off the TV, and just have a night of discussion and encouragement and eat good food, laugh together, play some board games together, whatever you want. Like, it's very practical, but it's very, very intentionally relational. The early church practiced this they were marked by the breaking of bread i'll give you an example of how my wife and i live this out we have a, a group of friends that um, not as often as we'd like of course but every every couple months we'll we'll get together with them on a on a saturday night we'll pick a book of the bible that we're going to read through we'll read through the book of the bible out loud each of us maybe eight of us take take a turn reading a chapter someone will prepare like a dessert, coffee will be brewed, we'll sit in the living room. No one preaches, like no, no one preaches or teaches necessarily. We, we just read the Bible, share a good meal, talk for a couple of hours, and we say, okay, let's do it again soon. Like super simple, super practical. This is what marked the early church. They devoted themselves to hospitality. And sharing meals with one another, discussing the teachings of Jesus, discussing where they're weak, where they're strong, and growing in relationship. Church, let me say this, if you do this routinely, even if you don't have a very good place to host or open up, go, go to a restaurant, pick, pick a couple people in, in the church even. Just, just go to a restaurant, make it, make it a point to do it with, with, with other people maybe once a month. If you do that routinely, relationships will begin to develop. That's what we do. We devote ourselves to the breaking of bread. And then lastly, it says they devoted themselves to prayer, or in, in some of your Bibles, the prayers. Um, when I learned how to pray, I kind of got baptized by fire a little bit. I'll just kind of thrown into it. I had a pastor. Um, it would have been six or seven years ago by now. But I had a pastor that was just marked by a life of prayer. And he took people, students under his wing and his biggest thing was teaching them how to pray by leading by example. And so here's how he got me to start a routine prayer life. He said, we're going to start a prayer meeting every week, Wednesday mornings from 6 to 7 a.m. How many of you know that's that's not the hour of the Lord? (laughs) Let's just so just be honest, okay? We're going to start a prayer meeting weekly from 6 to 7 a.m., and I want you to be in charge of starting the music for it. I'm overly responsible, and so I had to get there 10 minutes early to make sure it's all set for people to show up. And I kid you not, uh, almost without exception, for the better part of like five years, every Wednesday, me and a couple buddies would join this pastor for early morning prayer. Looking back, that's one of the most formative times in my life he taught me the importance of patterns of prayer and routine prayer when we talk about the early church devoting themselves to the prayers these are believers that very practically would if many many of them were jewish jewish christians they would have prayed Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 called the Shema, literally means to obey or listen or hear. They would have prayed Deuteronomy 6 4 once in the morning, once in the evening. The followers of Jesus also would have, they would have prayed the Lord's prayer, Matthew 6. They would have made this a routine thing. They would have prayed individually. They would have prayed collectively, together. They established patterns of prayer. It was the lifeblood of the early church. Is prayer the lifeblood of our church today? Is prayer the lifeblood of believers today? I ask you because I'm not looking for an answer, but I'm asking so that you can, you can ask the Lord to examine your heart. The early church, man, they, they couldn't imagine a Christian religion without prayer. Prayer. Are we living in such a way that we're marked and people could look at us and describe us as being devoted to prayer? This is what they devoted themselves to. Super practical, right? The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and they devoted themselves to the prayer. So as we, as we wrap up, I just want to give you, again, these next two weeks can be very practical, very practical teaching. I uh, just want to give you a couple couple next steps. If I've been praying through this week, maybe what God might be calling our church to, to do and how to begin living this out. Remember the question that we're addressing, the question we're asking is super practical in nature. It means, what does it look like to actually follow Jesus actively? What does it look like to actually connect the teachings of God's word that we hear on a Sunday and believe in our minds and connect that to impact, influence, and inform? every aspect of our life throughout the week. How can we do that? I think very simply, and I believe that God's word's calling you, calling me to obey and take a ne- next step in some way, shape, or form. So, so we, we just look at this. Devotion to the apostles' teaching. For some of you, this o- o- obeying and responding to this might be as simple as downloading the Version Bible app, and making it a point to read 15 minutes in the morning, and maybe bookend your night with a psalm. Like just routinely, every day, devoting yourself to the teachings of Jesus, devoting yourselves to reading the breadth of Scripture. Or or devotion to fellowship, relationship with other people. Maybe this is as simple as Writing down a list of three names, maybe in this church, or connecting with someone after service that you don't yet know and saying, do you want to get a lunch on the calendar? It's not going to be weird because the pastor talked about doing it, so why don't we just do it? right? Why? Let's get to know each other a little bit. Let's, let's, let's fellowship with one another. The breaking of bread. Maybe this means opening up your home and showing hospitality to someone you normally wouldn't. Or the prayer. This means waking up half an hour earlier and And praying, maybe using your commute time, very practical, using your commute to work to listen to the audio Bible and then pray for five or ten minutes. As we devote ourselves to Jesus, these are some of the features, these are some of the rhythms that the church used and lived in to strengthen their faith and build relationships with other people. We do this not out of obligation. We do this, church, you need to hear this. We do this because fundamentally, God has shown kindness to us by sending Jesus to live the life we could not live. By sending Jesus to die the death that you and I deserve to die because of sin. And then having Jesus rise again to give new life to all who would place their faith and trust in Jesus. That's why we do this. That's why we devote ourselves to one another and to Jesus. So would you consider with me these things as we close in prayer?